Amen. Awesome. Amen. Amen. I, I want to start off this morning with a, a parable, a story that Jesus told. It was recorded in Luke chapter 8, which we read this week. You can follow along on the screen or on your, your Bible. One day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him. A farmer went out to plant his seed. As he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Others fell among rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon withered and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. Still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. When he had said this, he, he called out, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He, he replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they looked, when they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they, they won't understand. Uh, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but since they, they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest Good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a large harvest. Question, Maple Grove, as we gather this morning, what type of soil are you? The footpath? The rocky soil? The thorny soil? The good soil? I mean, God's seed, right? It, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be scattered all, all, over, all over this room. And I actually left a blank in your paper that you can fill in. You know, you don't have to fill it in and no peeking over your neighbor's shoulder and say, man, I can't believe you're that kind of soil, all right? Um, but what kind of soil have you been recently? And, and as we prepare to hear God's word, what kind of soil are you intending to be? Would you pray with me? And as always, I invite you to pray with your palms open, ready to receive from God. Father God, we love you. You're an awesome, amazing, incredible God that loved us when we were unlovely, that picked us up when we fell and when we continue to fall. You fill us when we're dry. You carry us when we can't go on. You pursue us with your love, your mercy, and your grace. And Father, I pray today as we as we come together, as we gather around your word, Father, that, that, you would, that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our minds, that you would open up our eyes so that we would see and that we would hear and that we would understand. And Father, please enable me to share your word, God, in a, 
in a way that brings you honor and a way that pleases you. God, I pray that I that, that I, I preach and share to an audience of one and that everybody out there, that they listen to an audience of one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in this series where we're, we're digging into a letter that was written by the half-brother Jesus. And by a guy who literally grew up with Jesus. I mean, like, Jesus was his, his big brother. And, and that's not just insane that's crazy insane. I mean, just imagine that. I have a big brother. You know, it, you know, it, it, it would be hard for me to believe that he was God, right? You know, James had a big brother. And it was hard for James to believe that his brother was God. In fact, James actually, one time along with some of his other brothers and sisters, tried to take charge of Jesus and, and have him put away. But then something happened to James that, that radically transformed his life. He, he saw his big brother die, and then he saw his big brother come back from the dead, and that changed everything for him. I mean, after his encounter with the risen Lord, James became a key leader and a pillar in the church, and he constantly spread the word about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the coming of the kingdom of God. And, and well, one day, that, that preaching and his refusal to deny Jesus caused uh, an angry mob to grab him, take him to the top of the temple, throw him down, and when he hit the ground, they beat him to death, tradition says, with clubs, but while they're beating him, he followed in his big brother's footsteps, and he forgave them. Maple Grove, that, that's the guy who wrote the words that we've been studying since June 28th. And, and remember, James wrote, James wrote this letter to, to encourage Christians who have been scattered among the nations, right? You know, leaving behind their homes, all their stuff because of the intense persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen. And listen, he wrote to these Jesus followers who were, who were living in an increasingly hostile environment to encourage them to, to live lives that demonstrated real faith and to Live lives that did not give in to the comforts of the world or the ways of the world or the wisdom of the world. And, and, and brothers and sisters, as the title for this message indicates, the letter of James, it's all about making it real, making our faith real. You know, look three people in the eyes and say, let's make it real. Let's make it real. Okay, now poke them in the eye. And, no. <laughs> you see to James, authentic, genuine, real faith is all that mattered. Because without real faith, we will never be saved, we will never please God, and we will never toss mountains into the sea. And as James writes, he, he knows that he knows there'll be people holding this letter he was writing in their hands, and there'll be people gathered in, in those churches who thought that they had faith but they had deceived themselves about where they really were with God. Now, I understand, I, I knew that when we started this study in James that we will be having some very convicting, very challenging, and at times very uncomfortable conversations. Because what God breathed through James is that it is possible, in fact probable, for people to attend church, to talk about Jesus, to do some good stuff, to, to even lift their hands a few times as we sing, but in reality, they're not right with God. 
So I knew going in that there would be this razor's edge that I would have to walk as I let the word of God bear its weight upon us. And like I said last week, with a book like James, as much as it depends on me, I'm wanting, what I'm wanting to do is to avoid causing true Christians, especially those who are very vulnerable in their, in their faith right now, from doubting when you don't need to doubt whether or not you have genuine faith. I want to avoid that. In fact, I, I want to comfort you. I, I want to encourage you. I do not want to put a heavy burden upon you while simultaneously, I actually want to very explicitly confront those who need to be confronted because they have deceived themselves about where they really are with God. So I'm walking this, this line where I'm going to have to try to encourage those who are really trying, who really care deeply about their walk with God, encourage them to trust in their progress, not in their perfection, while at the same time knowing but at the same time, allowing the full weight of the word of God to fall upon those who are deceiving themselves about where they really are with God. And yes, I could preach happier sermons. But brothers and sisters, if this is true, if, if, what, God, if what God breathed through James is true, if we really could be deceived where we are with God, if we really could think we're right with God and not be right with God, if we really could think that we are a Christian and we're not, it would be cruel, it would be cowardice, it would be unloving of me out of my own comfort and I have a desire you know, not to offend somebody and have them, you know, have them leave to not engage us over something so important as the eternity of our souls. Get it? Good. Believe me when I tell you, I know that a lot of James is uncomfortable. I had a lady last week at the first service said, you know, just kind of teasing me, Virginia Pace, man, you got to stop stepping on my toes with James. I said, hey, he stepped on my toes all week. You know, I'm going to come back, I'm going to share the love with you, right? I just, you know, if, I'm going to do that. So as we go through James, I'm going to keep presenting to you what God tells us in this letter he chose to breathe, and then I'm going to let the Holy Spirit sort it out for each of us as he sees fit, okay? Now, now here's an important note as we get started. If you, if you lived in a home or grew up in a home or are leading out in a home where a father is good and gracious, his warnings are invitations. Are you tracking with me? So, so as a father, when I tell my children, when I warn my children, I'm actually inviting them into something better. So I'm warning them not to flex my power, but to keep them safe. So I say, don't do this. Why? Because I want you to be safe. Don't do this. Why? Because I want you to walk in joy. Don't do this. Why? Because if you do, this will bring me displeasure, and you don't want to displease me, right? So you see, good fathers don't warn because they have power and they want to flex it. Instead, they warn as a loving father because they want to invite their children into something better. Well, that's what's happening in the book of James. I mean, James, there are a lot of warnings in James. But I want you to understand, within every one of those warnings is an invitation of James into something better. And that something which is better is real faith. And James has already said in this letter that, that, that real faith is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ Christ 
from the dead. Maple Grove, I, I have good news for you. Jesus is alive and the tomb is still empty. And that changes everything. I'm going to say that one more time. Because like, because like it's true. And I'm not making this up. Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. Amen? Amen. Amen. He's alive. And it changes everything. It gives us hope. It gives us hope. It, it gives us eternity. Jesus, James also says that, that real faith is able to turn our trials into triumphs. It's able to make us victors, not victims. And, and that real faith enables us to overcome sin and temptation by knowing our enemy, knowing our God, and knowing our responsibility. And last week, we saw that real faith is about living our lives as a first fruits people. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Look, up, look three people in the eye and hope you do better than first service at this because you look a lot more fruitier, all right? And tell, tell everybody, look at that and say, I'm a first fruits person. Oh, you know what? Hey, hey, any first fruits out there? Any first fruits out there? We're first fruits. That, that means more is coming, right? Remember the church. Okay, you first fruits. Remember the church, as dim as it may be, is meant to be a snapshot of where God is taking the rest of the world. And where is God taking the rest of the world? God has taken the world to that place and that time where everything that is now wrong will be right. Everything that is upside down will be right side up to that time and place where everything will be exactly as God intended it to be. And we are a first fruit of what is coming. That's our identity. We're the model home. We're the first fruits of what the neighborhood of heaven is going to look like. Fellow Jesus followers, our, our lives are meant to be lived out like a, like a movie trailer, right? You watch this movie trailer, and people, God wants people to look at our lives and say, man, I, I want to live like that. I want a life like that. I want peace like that. I want joy like that. I want a marriage like that. Our lives are meant to be a, a movie trailer that draws people into the theater to enter the kingdom of God. That's our identity. That's our destiny. Amen. And last week, James said that as first fruits people, we must, and by must, I mean must. It's not an option. Here, here's the definition of the word must. It's, it's not an auxiliary very. It's an auxiliary verb, right? But I'm not very good at grammaticotation. Um, um, must. To be obligated or bound to an imperative requirement. I must keep my word. To be under necessity to. Animals must eat to live. James says as first fruits people, we must. And you know, sometimes I think we're uncomfortable with the Jesus who makes demands on us and who commands us. I mean, if we're honest, I think some of us would prefer to have a Jesus who wears fairy wings and sprinkles pixie dust on us and never makes any demands of us. You know, we're saved by grace through faith, which is true. But then after that, Jesus just kind of, he, he just kind of suggests things to us. Brothers and sisters, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. Uh, that's a declawed kitten, not the lion of Judah. 
Again, according to what God breathed through James 2,000 years ago, as first fruits people, we must. We must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Uh, We must be doers of the word and not auditors or hearers only. Uh, We must keep a tight rein on our tongue or else our religion, our faith is what? It's worthless. We must keep ourselves from being polluted by the world and look after the orphan and the widows. Now understand, if we want to see who, who has truly grasped God's grace and understands the salvation and mercy of God, look to those who care for those who cannot care for themselves. Look to those who are, because of their love and devotion from God, keeping themselves unpolluted from the ways and wisdom of this world. And again, James is writing this stuff because he knows. He knows that there'll be people reading this letter Gathering those churches, people who are not fulfilling either one of these obligations. They're not looking after the orphan and widows. They're not keeping themselves from being unpolluted from the world. And they're therefore, according to James, deceived about where they really are with God. Get it? Good. Didn't want it too much, did we? No, works do not save us. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith. But I think it was Martin Luther, the reformer, who said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You see, those of us who are saved see the world differently. We're not perfect, but we're making progress. And if James were here today, I think James would say this to us, where there is no progress in our walk, there should be what? There should be questions. There should be questions. Am I deceiving myself? Now James, in his letter, in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, is going to apply these principles to favoritism. In Maple Grove, it's God's desire that when we hear all that God wants to say, that we will leave this place and we will, my phone has one of contacts, and you know, that we will update our favorites list. And here's how I want to attack our text this morning. We're going we're to read the first 13 verses of chapter 2, and as I read them, I want you to look for the, for the what, the why, and then for the better way. That's pretty much my outline. Father God, bless the reading of your word. James writes, my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or I'll sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For you said you shall not commit adultery, also said you shall not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Then he ends with these words, mercy triumphs over justice. Okay, so the the what's pretty easy, right? The what is don't show favoritism. My brothers and sisters as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, now the Greek word translated favoritism, it's a compound word. It, it means to receive. It, 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 means to, it, it means to receive somebody's face. It, it, it means to receive somebody at face value on the basis of how they look, on the basis of their uh, appearances. It's a superficial judgment. Question, have you ever done that? Have you ever judged people by the outward appearance? Looks, clothes, age, hair color, Skin color, tattoos, accents, etc. Have you ever walked into a room, a classroom, an office, a church building, and began excluding and including people based on those things, creating your own favorites list? James says, don't do that. Don't accept people just on superficial judgments. The Good News Bible words it this way, never treat anybody in a different way according to their outward appearance. And then James gives his example, right? He says two people come to church, and they're new to the church, and we know they're new because uh, they don't know where to sit, right? And they don't have their assigned seats, and, 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 and one of them they know is new because the guy's very rich, and most people in churches in that day were, were poor. And it says that this rich guy, it, it, you know, literally, it, it says that he has gold rings, and literally in Greek it means he is gold-fingered. See, in New Testament times, you could, you could rent rings to prove that you're wealthy, and they would cut out jewels and they would put them on your clothes and it would be really gaudy, kind of like a, like a rhinestone cowboy. Like a rhinestone cowboy. Getting cards and letters from people I don't even know. You're wondering why you came to this show. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, sorry. Um, my wife's not here. I get out of control, right? And notice James doesn't criticize the guy for being wealthy. He criticizes the church for showing him special favor. Because there's nothing wrong with wealth, right? There's nothing wrong with having wealth as long as that wealth does not have you. Well, how do you know if your wealth has you? Because if Jesus asked you to give something up and you couldn't give it up, it's got you, right? He says, give up that thing. Well, I've been saving that thing. for me. Well, it's got you. It's got you. And then we have this poor guy comes in, right? Got this rich guy and the poor guy comes in. He's dressed in shabby clothes. He's dirty, holes in his jeans. It's obvious he hasn't taken a bath in a long time. I mean, the smell is nauseating. And the usher has a decision to make. Who's going to get the best seat? He says, the rich guy here, we have the best seat for you. Now, in those days, it'd be up front. I know that's like, that, that's like the dead zone here, right? <laughs> Forbidden zone, right? You know, no, not up front. But those days, because everybody could see him, everybody knows he's there. And then the usher says to the poor guy, hey, you know, well, you could sit there in the corner. Better yet, by the window, or you can sit here by my feet, in the Greek, under my footstool. Now, what church gathering would do something like that? You know, guys, imagine if a famous person had walked into our church building this morning. You know, this week I actually Googled famous people who live in Charlottesville. And guess what? None of you are on the list. Sorry. They, they, they don't know you, right? 
You know, but, but what would we do if a famous person came in, right? I mean, we'd grab our phones, right? We'd get out our selfie stick, right? Boom. We'd be taking pictures and as quick as we could. Let's put that on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Look who, you know, look who I'm with Instagram, right? You know, we'd be, here we go. Okay, here's some famous people who supposedly live in Charlottesville. See if you know they are. Who is it? Sissy Spacek? How about this, this guy? Rock? Okay, how about this guy? Howie Long? Good. You know your famous people? John Grisham? Wow, very good. How about the next guy? Who? Dave Matthews? Next guy? Tony Bennett, not the singer, right? Now, um, imagine if one of those six people came in, right, and you knew who they were, and this guy came in as well. Will we treat them any differently? Who would feel more welcome? Who would we invite out to lunch or over to lunch? A guy named Mike Bro was preaching at a church, Southland Christian Church, many years ago. Church running about 10,000, and he came to church dressed as a homeless guy. And, and, you know, dirty clothes, didn't take a bath for a while, probably looked a lot like that gentleman right there. And, 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 and nobody talked to him. You know, everybody avoided him. And then it came time for Mike to preach, and they're like, where's Mike? <laughs> You know, where's Waldo, right? Where's Mike? And suddenly this homeless guy or apparently comes walking up to the stage. The ushers kind of tried to stop him, and then he got up, and Mike took off the tattered clothes. He said, I've been here for hours. No one's talked to me. Everybody has avoided me. I don't know if he preached that day. I don't know if he needed to preach that day. What's the, the what is don't show favoritism. Let me summarize what I think James is trying to say. Do not withhold or give glory, love, affection, hospitality, friendship, mercy, kindness, or service to people based upon their external appearance. I understand we as Christians, the way we as Christians treat people is not to be determined by their economic status, their age, their clothing, their education, their weight, their gender, their sexual orientation, their skin color, or even their attractiveness. James says, don't show favoritism. Don't do it. And that's the what. And listen, I'm with you. Because you know what? I, I would probably be trying to take the rock out or have the rock take me out to lunch, right? I mean, if I'm honest. and I mean, we all have that pull, don't we, to... That pull to have our favorites be people that we like, that like us, or maybe that could help us get up a few notches on the, on the food chain. That's the what, which brings us to the why. And the why is always more complicated than the what, right? Any, anybody have kids out there? Then you get that, right? Okay, you get that. You know, the, the what is, you know, take your muddy shoes off, right? Why? Well, your gut reaction is to say what? Because I said so. That is really fun to say sometimes. But you know why we want to say? Because I said so. Because the why is always more complicated. It, it takes a lot more time to do that than to explain the why. Well, if you don't take your shoes off, you get mud through the house. You get mud through the house. I'm going to see mud on the carpet. And, and then my head is going to spin around and I'm going to puke green, right? Because I go crazy over carpet, right? Why is more complicated? Here's the why. We don't show favoritism. You dishonor God. You disavow the gospel and you're caught in a destructive sin. You dishonor God because that's not who God is. You disavow the gospel. That word disavow means to 
assert to be wrong or of little value. You're saying the gospel has, is wrong or has little value. You disavow the gospel because that's not what the gospel is about, and you are caught in a destructive sin, even if you think it's not that big of a deal. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppose you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Now, now that word favoritism is only used four other times in Scripture, and every time other than the one in James is talking about God. And the, the, the first one I want to talk about is in Acts chapter 10, and, and, and the, church is, the church is about 10 years old, and it has exactly zero Gentile converts. Zero. You know, it's really hard sometimes to squeeze the prejudice out of people. Well, then Peter gets a vision and a call from God that, hey, Peter, guess what? It's for Gentiles too. And then Peter said this. I now realize, after God slapped me in the head, how true it is that God does not show favoritism. The next verse is in in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is talking about how God feels about the sin of the Gentiles and the sin of the Jews. And he says, in regards to how God views sin, God does not show favoritism. Next is in Ephesians 6. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with them. The final one is in Mark chapter 12. Some people come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to to who they are. It's the same word. Literally, you do not look at the faces of men, but you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. See, Jesus Christ treated everybody with dignity. Brothers and sisters, God loves everybody, even those hard-to-love people. I mean, if there's one place in the world where There shouldn't be any kind of favoritism or discrimination. It ought to be in his church. Amen? I I mean, all out in the world, people are discriminated against. They're being judged by their appearance and outward things. But in his church, it should be the one place, no matter who you are, what you look like, where you've been, what your background is, you're welcome to come in and not sit by the window or not sit under your feet, but sit beside us and encounter God. That is why favoritism dishonors God. It disavows the gospel because the gospel is about the acceptance of all people. Everyone is welcome and invited to come and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we show favoritism, when we discriminate, we dishonor God and we're stepping out from under his saving grace and we become our own many judges judging others, as James says, with evil intentions. Listen, we were not saved because of our awesomeness. So the the demand that someone meet our criteria of awesomeness is anti-gospel. It's outside of how God saves. It's outside of how God works. It's outside of the mercy that we have received. See, Maple Grove, it's time for us, it's time for us to align our favorites list with the God who saved us in the gospel that we proclaim. Amen? And if our favorites list is only people that we like, that look like us, that like us, that can do things for us, what good is it? I mean, even the ungodly, right, have a favorite list like that. 
James says also that favoritism is a, is a sin. But if you favor some people over others, you're are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. James, it's such an itchy-beachy sin, right? It's not, it's not that big, James. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of all of it. For who said you shall not commit murder also said you shall uh, who said you should not commit adultery also said you should not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become what? A lawbreaker. How, how many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? How many crimes do you have to commit to be a criminal? How many links in the chain do you have to break to break the chain? Hey, have you ever been in a store where they had the motto, if you break it, you bought it, right? I, I, want, I think it's called Home Goods, right? We were in Home Goods recently, me and my, my, my three amigos, right, or two amigos, Gentile May Lee. And Gentile bumped into this little critter right here. It's a golf dude, right? This is his club right here. This is his arms, and he has a silver head for some reason, right? Like we're walking through that thing, and boom. Right? This is one of the times that actually God was residing in me, not the evil one, you know, because I, I just find it really nice. Like, wow, I ought to write this one down. Because I go, hey, Gentile, you know, I break things all the time. But, but you know what? It didn't matter whether we just broke off his head, right, or we just broke off his golf club, right? It, it, it was broken, right? You know, and, and fortunately, you know, we went to the counter. The guy wanted to let, let it go. I go, no, I got paid for it. I broke it. I have to pay for it. James is saying, it doesn't matter what you break. If you break it, you break it. I mean, it's like James is reading her mind, right, and whispering to her spirit. He knows what we're thinking. Now, I know you think it's not a big deal. I mean, you're not murdering anybody. You're not committing adultery. And James said, no, 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 no. It's a big deal. Breaking God's rule. Be careful. All sin is serious. And you know what? Favoritism is so much more serious than we think. It, it, one of the ways it dishonors God is it, it, it projects an image of God out into the world that is not who our God is. You know, when a so-called Christian stands on a street corner and, and holds up a sign that says God hates homosexuals, that dishonors God. That is a sin, and that is a lie, and it is anti-gospel. Because the gospel is about God's love for everyone and open invitation for everyone to surrender to Christ and to be made new. You know, I, I'm convinced that there are countless people who are still lost in their sins uh, because Christians have had such a narrow favorites list. And, and, and though we didn't put this mat outside our door, they felt it in their heart when they walked up to the place, they saw this mat, not welcomed. You're not welcomed here. You, you, you have the wrong skin color. You're not welcomed here. You, you, you struggle with pornography. You're not welcome here. You, you have, you struggle with your sexual identity. You're not welcome here. They felt it. You're not welcome here. But I want to tell you that that's not who we are as a church. We welcome everybody. If you're, if you're, if you're, we welcome liars. We welcome gossips. We welcome prideful. We welcome the fearful. We welcome the lazy. You know, we welcome those struggling with pornography. We welcome those struggling with their sexual identity. All people are welcome here. Listen, the church is. The church is meant to be a hospital for the sick, not a museum for frozen saints. 
All are welcome. All are welcome. Notice how Jesus went with the well, right? I was talking to a, a brother in between services. You know, she had a lot of sin in her life. He didn't start with that, did he? He didn't say, hey, by the way, I, by the well, oh, I know you. You're the one who's married five times and shacking up with a guy. He didn't start with her, did he? He started with the fact, hey, you know what? I can give you some living water. Yeah, he welcomed her. Speak and act as those are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Brothers and sisters, how we act and speak as Jesus' followers matters. And James is going to beat that drum again and again and again throughout his letter. Because how we act and how we speak reveals who we really are. And James warns us. He says, speak and act as those who know that one day you're going to stand before the God who shows no favoritism, who's going to ask you, how you been speaking? What you been doing? Then he says, because judge without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Can you say scary? That's a scary verse. That's crazy scary. It's kind of like Jesus said, right? If we don't forgive each other's sins, he won't forgive us. And we're like, yeah, he doesn't really mean that. <laughs> like he said it. There's no like seven seals we're trying to interpret here. You know, some kind of plagues and locusts thing. It seems pretty clear. Bottom line, faith without mercy towards others is not genuine faith. But the good news is, mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? And what I want to do in our time remaining and is I want to talk about the better way as we wrap up. And the better way, better than favoritism, the better way it's to be, first of all, captivated by the glory of Christ. James starts out like this. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. I understand the emphasis here is on, on how the glory of God is embodied in the person of Christ. The emphasis is on the, the majesty and the glory, the splendor, the reign, and the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And, and, and believers, as believers in that Christ, Think about this. If we are captivated by the glory of Christ, if we are captivated by the King of Kings, we're captivated by the fact that He is the great I am, that He's our soon recoming, soon returning King, that, that He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. If we're captivated by His glory, it, it, it changes the way we view other people. I mean, why would we make a fuss over wealthy people? Like, oh, you're all that. And we got the glory of Christ. James is saying, get your eyes off the glory and wealth of this world. Be captivated by the glory of Christ. And why would we look down on people? No matter where they are, how destitute they are, how lost they seem, when that's somebody that the Lamb of God died for. See, when we're captivated by the glory of Christ, there's no reason to show favoritism, man. Because, man, there's no one as glorious as Christ. I mean, we give so much undue honor to people in this world. Christ deserves all honor. Christ deserves all honor. No one else. Understand, the way we view Jesus will affect how we view others. 
Jesus becomes the filter through which we see other people. Get it? Good. The better way is to also be gripped by the grace of Christ. Hasn't God chosen poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Uh, Maple Grove, this is the picture we see throughout redemptive history. God in his grace pursuing, and particularly the poor, not just because they're poor, but because they, they, they respond to him. They, they recognize their need for him. Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a really good person like me. That's not what it says. We're dead in our sins. Understand, James is saying that when we neglect the poor, when we show favoritism, we are negating the way of the grace of God that's part of redemptive history. We're going against the very plan and purposes of God, a God who came on the scene in the person of Christ and reversed our status in the world. Paul talked about Christians in the first century telling them, hey, you know what? Not many of you were of noble birth when you came here. <laughs> you know, look around this room. We didn't bring much to the table, did we? But we still got to eat the feast. You see, when we're gripped by the grace of Christ, it, it changes the way we see people. See, God not only reverses our status, he changes the way we see status in the world. It's what did for Paul. You know, Paul says, you know, the love of Christ compels me because I'm convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And, 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 and then he makes a statement. He goes, I, therefore, I no longer view anyone from a worldly point of view. Oh, you're so wealthy or you're so that. He goes, no, I don't review anyone from a worldly point of view. Because anyone can come to Christ and become a new creation. The better way is to be captivated by the glory of Christ, gripped by the grace of Christ, and to be lovers of the law of Christ. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. It's called the royal law because our king gave it to us. And he gave it to us way back in Leviticus chapter 19, 3,400 years ago, when he said, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but what? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the royal law because if we obey this one law, we. we would need all the rest. Paul put it this way in Galatians 5.14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Talk about cliff notes, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul said this, the only thing that counts, Galatians 5.6, is faith expressing itself through love. I'm gonna say the first half and you finish it for me, right? The only thing that counts The only thing that counts. The only thing that counts. Amen. Amen. And as James said, you know, he, he said in, in chapter 1, verse 25, he, he, said, he, he refers to this as the law, the law that gives freedom. You see, when we obey the royal law, we're set free, right? We're worried more about loving God and loving others. It actually frees us in a way that we've never been free before. It's real freedom. We need to be captivated by the glory of Christ, gripped by the grace of Christ, lovers of the law of Christ, and then we need to be reflections of the mercy of Christ. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, if our lives have been transformed by the gospel, that mercy has flooded into our hearts and it changes everything about how we live. I mean, we can't receive a mercy like that and go on and on with a loose tongue and deeds that avoid the poor and the needy and the oppressed and the weak. We just can't do it. It's impossible if we've been flooded with the mercy like that. So what James is going to show us in the coming weeks is that, you know, it's impossible to say that, that we have faith if there are no actions from that faith. And, and here, here, here's the power of the better way. When the mercy of God is a reality in your heart, then mercy towards others becomes a reality where? In your life. I mean, it will flow out from us onto other people. And the mercy of God is a reality in your heart. The mercy towards others becomes a reality in your life. And this is how James can say, I mean, he comes full circle, that this is how James can say, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their stress. Now, he's not saying look after orphans and widows in their distress so that you can receive mercy, right? He's not saying that, because that, that would undercut the gospel. Because mercy is mercy, right? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. You can't, you can't earn mercy, right? Mercy is a gift. How, however, however, faith that looks after orphans and widows in their distress, faith that tries to keep themselves from being unpolluted from the world is the automatic byproduct of the transforming mercy of God in our hearts. Amen? Are you tracking with me? See, Maple Grove, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, the mercy of God produces mercy in the people of God. The mercy of God the mercy of God, he's been so merciful to you. The mercy of God produces mercy in the people of God, which transforms the way we speak and the way we act, which leads to this reality, the manifestation of a true and acceptable faith, religion. A love for God, a love for others, a love for the orphan and the widow, a love that keeps us unpolluted, a love that updates our favorites list. I'm, I'm convinced that there's a lot of good soul out there. And, and so what, what, I want to leave us with a challenge this morning. I, I want to challenge you to be captivated by the glory of Christ. He is so glorious. Nothing compares to him to be gripped by the grace of Christ, to be lovers of the law of Christ, and to be reflections of the mercy of Christ.
and to leave this place and update your favorites list. So it aligns with the God who saved you and the gospel that we proclaim. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for James. And God, forgive us, forgive me for favoring, showing favoritism. God, I repent of that sin. Holy Spirit, help me to update my favorites list. Father, I pray that we as a people will be accepting of all people. And God, I pray that your mercy will flow in us and flow out from us. I pray that we'll be so captivated by your glory, so gripped by your grace, so in love with your law, so, so passionate about your mercy, so overwhelmed by your grace, Lord, that we become an incredible reflection of you. And Father, I pray that as we sing this song, Lord, that those, maybe there's some in this room who are not right with you, and maybe they never surrendered you for the first time, God, I, I pray that they don't leave this place without you. They can come up and talk to me after service. I'll be up here. And God, I pray for all of us that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and that we celebrate the fact that we didn't have to go out looking for grace, but grace came and found us. In Jesus' name, amen.